Today, we bask in the light of mustachio greatness. You know we really haven't had enough westerns on the podcast, and that's my fault, really. It's probably the film genre I'm not as familiar with, but I actually really do enjoy it when I do see a really good western film. But that's why I look to listeners and guests to offer up some dope-ass movies to cover on the show. That is also why we are honoring the various mustachioed actors, including a few mustachiosos, in the 1969 American revisionist western film, The Wild Bunch, a movie that brings the unrelenting grit, darkness, and bloodshed to the western genre, thanks to the visionary that is Sam Pickenpaw, which we will get more into him later. The same man, by the way, who directed Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which we covered a few episodes back. Anyway... No sense in wasting any time. We got 145 minutes of movie to discuss. Now let's grab a clear bottle of some brown liquid that we hope is whiskey because there's no label on it. Head over to a small Mexican village and get shit-faced at the Pachanga because it's time to freaking yeehaw our way into the wild, wild south, goddammit. Now play that shit theme song. It's the Mustachio Podcast, you we're ready for the show. We'll watch moves, we'll make some jokes, and then we'll all go home. Navigating the legendary hairy upper lips, it's the Mustachio Podcast, you. Oh, God, I had a burp so bad. I was trying to get through that. Oh, man, damn beer. All right. Uh, welcome to the Mustachio Podcast. Yo, this is your host, Daniel Segura. And today I welcome, uh, I would like to say, a fan favorite. A lot of people like what he brings to the show. He's got so much background and information. He's going to bring even more today. Um, I think um, before we started recording, he said he may have had 40-some-odd pages of notes. I think he beat Tim Yobo in notes. <laughs> Tim Yobo's like the most note-taking son of a bitch I know. Anyway, his name is Faustus. Welcome to the show, Faustus. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Hell yeah. I, I've so been looking forward to this particular this particular movie. Yes, dude. I, I had never seen it before, so I'm I you you pop my wild bunch cherry, baby. All right. <laughs> well shall we it's just amazing. shall we, shall we yeah. be in the spirit and thing of things and just start with let's go. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go, baby. I mean and as I asked most of my guests, you know, uh what was it that wanted to wanted uh, that made you want to bring this to the podcastio? Well, I think that at first it was a little bit facetious because I thought, what is the most mustachioed movie I can think of? And uh -huh. this is probably it. Uh, every, just about, I think every male character in the movie, except for Ernst Borgnine, uh, has a mustache. <laughs> Some of them quite impressive. And then I thought, well, this is just a tremendous movie, right? It really goes over the top. It has some of the most extraordinarily violent scenes anyone had ever seen in a Hollywood-produced movie in 1969. Uh, it's a great revisionist Western. It was so violent that I think when they the studio did a sort of a test showing in Kansas City, there was almost a riot. 
Uh, people were calling the police and asking for it to be shut down. Uh, and you were turning comment cards like, how did you make this piece of garbage? But there was always, even at the initial showing, there were like about a third of the people who were there who said, this is incredible. This is a great work of art. Um, and then when it was shown to critics a couple of months later at, an, at a sort of preview showing, they had a similar kind of reaction. A lot of people thought it was garbage. But some of the more prescient ones, uh, and including like Roger Ebert, who was then a young writer in Chicago, said this is a... This is unique. This is a work of art we've never seen before. And that was kind of the way I felt when watching it when I first saw it. I think I first started watching it. I didn't even have that strong sense of its reputation, but I was doing, I was working my way through Sam Peckinpah, uh, because I was so impressed by, uh, Straw Dogs, uh, as this bleak, incredibly nihilistic vision. And I wanted to see what he had done with what was considered his most celebrated Western. And here we ended up with this, The Wild Bunch. And I said, well, this is a great movie. There are endless mustaches. Uh, this has got to go on the podcastio. So here we are. <laughs> I I love Sam Peckinpah just for the little bit that I know of his work. I like his way of storytelling. I like how he's able to kind of make a character have quite a bit of personality without really giving them too many lines or anything specific he's just able to really capture someone's personality and this movie may have some of the most different personalities that i've seen in a movie in a while and it's amazing he just was uh the whole production team did a great job the casting team did a great job of finding the right kind of cast to be in this movie and it just works i i can't wait to dig into it but yeah so peck and paul what are some of your what is some of your other uh what's some of your other um knowledge of this director because i i really i saw you know bring me the head of alfredo garcia i've seen a couple other things but he's a very peculiar son of a son of a gun <laughs> he's, like, he's, a, he's a little different he has a, he has a, sort of a complex past he tended to romanticize it a little bit as if he had grown up in the old west yeah. what was what was really what was really the case is that he was descended who came from a fairly distinguished central california family uh i think they were from the area of what was it, fresno or somewhere around there oh, his, wow. great, his great great grandparents had come across or grandparents had come across the plains or so in a covered wagon but they made out really well and so by the time that we get to Sam Peckinpah's generation, he's growing up in the 1930s, his father was probably one of the most, you know, one of the wealthiest and uh, most successful lawyers uh, in town. And his maternal grandfather did own a big old ranch, but who was, he, by this time, he was really making his living in politics. He was a three-term U.S. congressman and a superior court judge in California. However, it does appear to be the case that around this ranch where Peckinpah was hanging out as a boy, often playing hooky from school, he was a bit of a discipline problem, uh, he would he would probably have met some people who would remember, old guys who kind of remembered a world of the Old West before, you know, there were railroads and telegraphs and all kinds of, uh, you know, elements of civilization uh, around. Yeah. So he had some sense of that. Uh, and he grew up, he was a bit of a, a problem. He was, uh, you know, he was like a good athlete in high school, but he didn't, gra he didn't spend his last year there. Uh, he was enough, he was enough of a problem that his father sent him to military school, uh, that, that fly catch of all American fail sons. No kidding. And, and um, <laughs> he, 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 you know, he, uh, he spent, he went to military school 
and graduated from something called San Rafael Military Academy, uh, which is, I think, curious because the town that the, is first seen in The Wild Bunch is called San Rafael, uh, mm. in supposedly, <laughs> a, supposedly a town somewhere in South Texas. Uh, after he got out of school, he joined the United States Marine Corps. Uh, his unit was never sent into combat, but it was sent to China. Uh, to basically be involved in the very complicated task of disarming and repatriating Japanese troops who had surrendered there. While he was in China, he apparently witnessed a lot of really awful violence uh, that probably marked him for the rest of his life. Uh, and one, one, in, one episode he apparently witnessed was a man being tied to and dragged behind a car, uh, which influences Davos, we'll, we'll see in this movie a little later on. He had wanted to marry, he wanted to uh, be discharged from the Marines in Beijing so that he could marry a Chinese woman, but the Marine Corps refused to do that, and they sent him back to Los Angeles to be discharged there. Wow. This may have this may have marked his attitude towards authority for a lot of the rest of his life. Uh, in Los Angeles, he first went to sort of like I guess his local branch of California State, uh, and then where did my notes say he went? He went to some place. I think um, where did he go? He, he then went. He, he went to U.S. He went to University of Southern California, and he had studied drama. He had act, he had acted and run community theater, but he knew he wasn't going up that direction. So he got a job working for KLAC in Los Angeles in the late 1940s. Uh, he was essentially a stagehand, but he obviously learned a lot about how to do uh, television and movie production. Uh, from his KLAC job, he got a job working as a dialect coach or a language coach. Uh, because he was apparently very, he had a lot of proficiency with languages, mm. uh, having been in China and also having been to Mexico for the first time. So he worked with a, a director named uh, Don Siegel. He was the dialect coach on movies called Riot and Cell Block 11 and the original 1950s version of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Wow. Uh, he would eventually show, run, and create his own Western, a show called The Westerner, uh, which ran i think only for like something like 13 episodes or some such uh didn't get renewed but which is now thought of as something of a cult classic by uh western television aficionados because he was in that even at that early time he was beginning to develop the cinematic techniques that would make the wild bunch so effective mm. uh yeah the use of the use of slow motion the use of montage things that you really wouldn't have seen a whole lot of in television around 1960 when he made it he would eventually he would go up from there to be make, making movies he made some that were critically successful some that weren't mostly westerns uh i mean some were you know kind of financial disasters um like you know there's like one called Major Dundee in the nineteen around 1965, mm -hmm. which was a huge flop. But he, he had also made a movie called Ride the High Country, which was considered like a, a major critical success. Uh, he had been out of work for kind of a while at the time he was making The Wild Bunch. He was always difficult to get along with. Uh, he always had a problem with he always had a problem with drinking. Uh, so, uh, some of his friends think that probably began in, in China as a reaction to a kind of you know, probably a reaction yeah. to a kind of post traumatic stress disorder from like seeing people being shot and tortured and so forth, which was you know, unfortunately something that you know, you would have to cope with in his situation. Also, kind of curious if maybe he was maybe in love with someone in China. Maybe that's why he, maybe he already had a relationship going and then it fell apart once he wasn't able to actually stay and marry. And once, once the Marines sent him back. Yeah. I mean, you um, never know, but I, I know like with bringing the head of Alfredo Garcia, that the character that, um, 
that Warren Oates plays is supposed to be pretty much based off of Peckett Paul, and he's just like a kind of a lumbering uh, drunk guy that that is uh, a, quite a mess. Uh, so I can see how he was kind of wild uh, to work with uh, on set. He had he had a lot of he had a lot of trouble, and I remember uh, once on a DV or I guess a Blu-ray extra, they were interviewing Chris Christopherson, who was uh, a friend of Peckinpah's later in life. Uh, and he says, you know, once I, I, when he was feeling really, uh, down, I wrote him a little song to try to help get him up. And it, it was a hangover, a hangover song. He said, he woke up Sunday morning, couldn't find a way to holler at my head that didn't hurt. Like the beer I had for breakfast. So I had another for dessert. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, kind of the peck and paw life, but. Wild Bunch is probably the high near the high point of his creative his creative output. Uh the movie that follows it, uh Peckin is called Straw Dogs, uh which un, is sort of unusual because it's not set anywhere in the West or even in the United States, but is very bleak uh and very dark. Uh also caught a lot of critical attention. And you know, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia is sort of cult classic. He tails off a bit with a number of movies that he makes in the 1970s, and then he dies, I guess, around 1980 or so? 84. Uh, you know, kind of washed out, uh, you know, in very poor health because of a lifetime of drinking excessive drinking and, and drug like use. Smoking and yeah, so, all that shit. Uh, but he is, he is a unique figure in American cinema, and these are tremendous movies. So I'm, you know, again, really terrific. I'm just, I, I think it's terrific that we're, that we're doing a second one, be, uh, in, on the tale of Bring Me the Head of, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Uh, <laughs> I know, isn't it the most fun movie to say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's also it's also weird to try to summarize because when I first thought of it, I said, "Okay, this is going to be like you know, some guy goes and you know fights, shoots his way into Alfredo Garcia's supervillain compound, uh, and you know takes his head." But that turns out not to be true because Alfredo Garcia is actually dead before the movie starts. Yeah, you never meet him. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you never even meet this guy. And, and then it, then it's going to be like there's going to be some kind of big mystery to find out where he is. But it, it, as it turns out, he just or or he died in some kind of huge car wreck shootout. But in he, fact, he just crashed his car yeah. when he was drunk. <laughs> he just took a bad turn <laughs> off a cliff and died. It's like this movie is bonkers. I loved it so much. Yeah, uh, I, you get a, a little bit of that vision uh, that Pig and Paul brings. Um, and and obviously, he's a lot older. Um, he's you know he's a good amount older by the time he made Alfredo Garcia, but. You do get a little bit of that vibe um, that he brings to his movies here. I just I think the Wild Bunch is maybe a little better put together, um, tells a story a little bit more intricately, and it it flows a little bit easier um, in in the Wild Bunch. But I still like them both for what they bring. Um, it's a lot of fun. I I think he did a great job on both of them. I I think Alfredo Garcia didn't do as well. Um, it was kind of more of a kind of later on became a cult classic as far as i remember i i don't think it was a huge blockbuster hit <laughs> bring me the head mm. of alfredo garcia but it's still really great to watch if y'all have never seen that one check it out listen to the episode but uh today we're talking the wild bunch and yeah it is it, it, and honestly like if, even if you look at photos of him, there's like photos of him uh speaking to the actors like speaking to william holden and stuff and he looks like he's from 1985 and it's 1969 but like the way right. he's dressed the way he looks like he looks like all like different like he's just he was a different cat for sure yep absolutely <laughs> i'd like to note also that there is tremendous talent on here cinematographer lucian ballard 
uh, who had, had, was near the end of a long career that had actually begun when he was a cameraman for Joseph von Sternberg, if you can believe that, all the way back in the 30s. Wow. Uh, and who had worked with, you know, directors like Robert Mamoulian. Uh, he had, um, gotten a, you know, an Academy Award in 1963 for The Caretakers. He also worked with the Three Stooges, apparently. Um, when they were when they were making their movies, Holy he said that was a, that was a, he said that was a lot more fun because you could be a lot more experimental as a cinematographer in that context exactly. than you could be in a normal movie. He composes the most amazing shots. Uh, I mean, you, they're very deep. Uh, you can see things going on in foreground and background. Yeah, uh, that gives you a sense of the narrative complexity of the movie, and must have been really hard to shoot. And also, he just puts, points his camera at this incredible uh, you know, desert. Uh, scrubby country and just makes it look amazing uh you know, shooting in yeah, natural he made, light like, he made like the wild brush of mexico look like elegant in a lot of angles and also a lot of shots that have literally been borrowed in tombstone in movies like years and years and years and years later and you're like yeah obviously there was it's weird like the further back i go and i watch westerns i start seeing because i was a 90s kid i watched westerns from the 90s and late 80s and so i see a lot of those influences i can see a lot of those camera angles of that cinematography influence so it's it's amazing to see it and i'm sure it was harder back then to do it <laughs> uh, it certainly was uh and then uh, other people who worked with this i just want to note also jerry fielding remarkable score Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he took the, he took a lot of Mexican folk melodies and so forth and wove them into this really bittersweet, haunting kind of music, uh, that, that helped make the movie. Peckinpah apparently had wanted to make a, a, a score that had just two guitars or something like that. Fielding, <laughs> and, and Fielding said, this is not going to work. It's not appropriate for the vision of the movie. He wrote a, a score that really was. So again, and I think he was nominated for an Academy Award, um, for this score. Uh, but unfortunately, he lost to Burt Bachrock, uh, ah. doing 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 the score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So fucking Peck and Paul wanted a, a fucking Devil Goes Down to Georgia type shit, <laughs> just like yeah. a banjo and an acoustic guitar. <laughs> sure, <laughs> or some bullshit like that. But yeah, no, I <laughs> Peck and Paul. I imagine he would give ideas. They'd be like, "Yeah, we don't want to do that." <laughs> You wouldn't want to do your weird fucking idea, bro. But yeah, no, the the fucking the music is fantastic. Well, is there anyone else in the in the crew that is worth noting? There are probably lots of people that I haven't gotten adequate notes on. Uh, but I have to say, the art direction here is also amazing uh, because you know, they took they really make this the 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 town of San the fictional town of San Rafael is really a, a Mexican town called Paras. Uh, located maybe about a hundred miles south of the border. And they just, they were able to move in and just make it look like a Texas town from the turn of the century. Wow. Uh, they had to make, they had to make basically dirty the town up a bit, uh, like put dirt down on all the streets and take down all the television aerials, put up English language signage. But once they had done that, they had a remarkable, you know, verisimilitude. Uh, and then everything else that they put together, the costuming, it's just like mm -hmm. this, it's, it, this thing is remarkable for its attention to detail. Uh, it's a historically set movie. Costumes are great. Sets are great. There, it's, it's so remarkable that when there are occasional mistakes, which I'll note one or two, uh, they stand out because everything else is so well done. Yeah. Um, so for sure. Yeah. I love the way the, the, uh, village that, 
we find the general in later. I think it's like Agua Verde or something like that. I could be yep. wrong, but that looks amazing. I like the way it just is all structured and the way it feels and the amount of extras that they have in this movie are amazing. Like every extra did such a great job and they all look like they're from the area that they were filming in or around the area. Um, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, just, just a great job all around. But if you're ready, Faustus, I'm ready to start breaking this baby down. And then we can start featuring some of these actors. Let's go. All right. So let's break down this baby. Um, the movie wastes no damn time. Uh, we right away see some men on horses. They're wearing some uh, kind of, to me, uh, just because I'd never seen these old uniforms, I thought they looked like kind of like park rangers. <laughs> they're, they're actually, these are actually historically accurate. Yes, uh, US, they are. US, US Army cavalrymen. They are. I, I had to look back later on, and I was like, oh, shit. Oh, look at that. <laughs> there are five of them. They're riding through a rail yard into some small town someplace. Yeah. Uh, and this is where we get our introduction to, like, basically the bunch. Uh, yeah. Yes, as we will learn... Uh, they're led by some guy, yeah, an actor uh, named William Holden, uh, who's playing uh, the character of Pike Bishop. Oh, Pike Pike yeah. Bishop, uh, who is yeah, what a name! It's uh, a hell of a name. He's, he's leading them. He's led by William Holden. Holden had had a magnificent career in the 1950s. Uh, he was you know some of the some of the credits that he was central to. Just to look those up, he was in Sunset Boulevard. He was in Stalag 17, Sabrina. He had a brief affair with Audrey Hepburn when he was filming Sabrina. Oh. Uh, yeah. Lucky him. Lo- yeah, it's more than we can say for a lot of people. Love is a many splendid <laughs> thing. He was in Picnic in 1955. He was in The Bridge Over the River Kwai with Alec Guinness uh, in 1957 and in The World of Susie Wong in 1960. Then in the 60s, 1960s, he was a little bit, his career was a little bit on the I was going to ask you, was he a little bit in a, kind of on a lull at this point? <laughs> I, I think he was kind of a low. I think he had kind of his own set of like, you know, alcohol issues. Yeah. Uh, but obviously Peckinpah saw something in it. Boy, did he come in for this one. Uh, he's tough. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it probably bounced his career back a little because he would also, he would have an, at least one more really great role. If you've ever seen Paddy Chayefsky's 1976 movie Network. Mm. Uh, he plays a news executive in this very cynical black comedy um, nice. that won that won like four Academy Awards, but not one for him, unfortunately. Uh, I would have thought he might have deserved a Best Supporting nod for that, but he didn't get it. Yeah. Um, so he's he's leading them. The next to him is sort of number two guy. This is uh, Dutch Engstrom. Oh yeah, uh, Dutch. Dutch Engstrom is played by Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, uh, who a lot you know, is a very well known actor. He basically. He started kind of late uh, in life after, like, having done a couple of other things. He was considering just becoming a factory worker when he came back from the Navy after the Second World War. His mother said, that's not good enough for you. Why don't you try being an actor instead? Uh, It worked out rather well. And by 1955, he had actually won a Best Actor Academy Award. Uh, That's a rapid ascent for a a male actor. I mean, he he does genuinely look like... He just came out of a factory. Like, I mean, like... Yeah, he could be, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Like, he plays a very working-class role. It's a movie called Marty, uh, which is the, also Patty Chayefsky, interestingly enough. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's, it's actually a very sentimental, very sweet movie about two lonely people who find each other uh, and who overcome sort of 
barriers to having to having a relationship uh and he plays one of them like a, a butcher who's ugly and socially inept but who has a very good heart yeah. uh he is an unusual he, looking son of a bitch i give him that yeah. but hell of an actor and hell of an actor he also wasn't you know wasn't in a very high state in the late 1960s he had i think been doing a lot of television at that point including a well-known tv series called mikhail's navy but he bounced off of this uh and he would go on to have a very good and very long oh, yeah. career he was he was doing a voice uh in square spongebob squarepants believe it or not uh it's like you know, i don't know what this character is called i didn't really grow up in the right era <laughs> But it's sort of, what is, this, what is this guy called? Oh, Mermaid Man. Um, those of you who, I guess, have watched this when you were growing up will know who Mermaid Man yeah, is. Yeah, unfortunately, which it's, is good. it's before which you, is good. but it's also before me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'm glad somebody knows. He was he continued to do this up, up to the very end. He was still doing voice acting when he was 95. Yes. I mean, he is one of those that just has such a very specific tone to him. He has a, a really good, distinct voice. But, yeah, I love him in this. As we keep going on, we do learn more about him. Right now he's more silent. He, you kind of right, right away can tell that him and Pike have a really good partnership. They've been around each other for a long time because for the first part of the movie, they hardly say words, but they're communicating. Um, yep. And I like the screen, the freeze frame stuff. And we're doing the credits. It goes into like a dark kind of grayscale style. Um, and also I noticed... That in westerns, the kids do some, like, crazy barbaric shit. Like, in this case, they're feeding scorpions to a whole colony of what looks like fire ants. <laughs> what they what they did was they built, uh, like, a little, like, almost like a little corral yeah. of an anthill. And then they put, uh, they put two scorpions on top of it. These red ants, of course, are now attacking the scorpions. Um, you know, the scorpions can't really fight back against the ants, so they're being eaten alive. And all these kids, cute little kids, right? You know, they're, and they're, they think it's the greatest thing ever. And, you know, as these cavalrymen ride by, uh, it's sort of like Pike Bishop looks down at them, and it's like, this guy is a really hardened criminal, and it's he, the look on his face is like, oh, that's awful. Yeah, like but, of course... Damn. But he has a job to do, so he rides on by uh, together with, uh, oh, you know, to, together with Dutch, uh, yeah. the two Gorch brothers as well. Uh, one of Lyle and Tector. Uh, Tector. Lyle is Tector is played by Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson is probably the one real cowboy in this group. Oh, okay, he, I didn't know that. He he was in fact like a world champion rodeo performer. Holy shit. He got to Hollywood originally because his dad, who owned a, a ranch in Oklahoma, sold a bunch of uh, horses to a Hollywood director for making one of his movies. In fact, I think it was to Howard Hughes for making The Outlaw. Uh, and tech, you know, the, Ben Johnson was sent along basically to be horse wrangler. Uh, and he was so successful at this that they offered him an acting contract, uh, and he worked his way up. He uh, appears here, and he would go on to, he for someone who regarded his principal achievement in life as being a rodeo roper, uh, he would go on to have a great acting achievement in that he would be Sam the Lion in The Last Picture Show. Wow. Which for which he won an Academy Award. That is amazing. Yeah, you know, he just had this. He has this extraordinarily kind of laid back, 
you know, Western guy style, uh, someone who's not likely to panic at anything because he's probably seen all kinds of catastrophes. Yeah, he does seem very authentic in the movie. Yep. Uh, he's yep. not having to try too hard to play this kind of character. Nope. And he, and he, like, he could ride as, as well as anyone could. So he's like, just, he's probably just really comfortable on set in these, in this role. The character who's his brother, Lyle, is played by our all-star. Mustachio, so baby. <laughs> yep. One gets uh, the sense that he is kind of the idiot younger brother here. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, but, the slightly um, drunker one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, nonetheless, I really remember the guy. And then the youngest one uh, is a character named Angel. Uh, he's the only Mexican character he in is. the gang. Yeah. Uh, I think he, it's Jaime Sanchez. He's played by Jaime Sanchez, yeah. who's actually Puerto Rican. Uh, he had he would actually come out of a stage career in New York, where he had been in the stage productions of West Side Story. Uh, I got to say, and, though, dude looks Mex. I, I I've met a lot of Puerto Ricans. This guy looks Mexican as hell. Like there's just well, something he, he, about him. This this is something he actually worked on. Apparently, before the movie, he spent several months. Working to because the accent's all, different too. To do, right to do to have a uh, to have a Mexican accent in Spanish rather than a Puerto Rican mm-hmm. accent in Spanish, and to have a Mexican inflection in English, yep. rather than a Puerto Rican inflection in English. Uh, that's that's his level of of actorly detail, and I think he does this a good job. Oh yeah. Uh, so I mean, I'm not an expert on how these things should sound, but I think, it's not easy. It's not easy to be convincing in sort of a, a cross second language that way. I thought he did a really yeah. good job of not making it cartoony or overdoing it, which was very easy to fall into. I thought he did a really good job. I honestly, I didn't even know he was Puerto Rican. So yeah, I thought I figured he was a, a Mexican. Either at least a Mexican American or a Mexican national. I wasn't sure, but yeah, he does a great job, and his storyline is very intricate throughout this movie. That's for sure. He's kind of a major player, and at first, you just think he's kind of a character. It's just kind of there, just the token Mexican guy in the gang. <laughs> but he's actually much more essential. Uh, unlike in Tombstone, where like the Mexican guys in the cowboy gang, he's just like he's like ole pinche way. Like he's just there to like say stupid shit. <laughs> But in this one, he's actually a big part of their. He's kind of kind of the moral heart of the movie. Yeah, really. so I yeah, thought without, that was cool. Yeah, so he's so they're riding into town and they ride past. First, they go past these horrible, sadistic children <laughs> with you know, these yeah. you know who are like tormenting these scorpions to death. Never thought I'd feel sympathy for a scorpion, but there <laughs> it's it is. Rough. Then we get they like ride a, in the town. What is it a preacher coming up, or is this a? Well, this is a temperance meeting. Oh, that's right. Okay, <laughs> right there. There's a man. He might be. He might be a clergyman of some kind, but he's basically lecturing a uh, an audience, uh, a smallish audience, in about you know staying away from you know the evils of liquor and so forth. Uh, he's got a band, and uh, <laughs> you know there are the there are these people who are watching him very seriously. Apparent one another piece of curious trivia is yeah. you know who you know who Francisco Madero was right? No, Francisco Madero, who's that? Francisco Madero. He was the. We, we have to we have to understand that these are events taking place at the time of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, it's able to we're able to date this particular action to roughly sort of mid nineteen thirteen. 
by you know contemporary references oh, within president. the script. Okay, okay. Right. He has been the Francisco Madero was the first post Diaz president of that's Mexico, right. and he had essentially, his activities essentially kicked off the Mexican Revolution. Uh, these are the sad times for Mexico, as um, Don Jose will say later on. He's basically referring to the fact that it's now just gone nuts. Uh, but apparently one of the people in the, one of the extras in the audience at the temperance meeting is his younger brother. No who's, shit. Who's, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, like, That's amazing. Apparently. Apparently, like Peckinpah found this guy somewhere and uh, invited him to be in the movie, so he did. So they they ride by, they go down the main street of this this little Texas town, uh, and as they're going by, the, a couple of other cavalrymen apparently, you know, get up, they salute, oh, yeah. uh, uh, Pike Bishop because he's wearing a lieutenant's uniform. Uh, he's a very old lieutenant, I have to say, but that's yeah. <laughs> that's promotion true. was. Promotion was very slow in the U.S. Army before the First World War. Uh, and they go down the street. They dismount. They tie up their horses. As they're walking down the street, Ernst Borgnine runs into, like, an old lady, uh, knocks her parcels to the ground, and he apologizes. you got to admit, he does kind of give her a face at first, like he was going to backhand yeah. her, but he's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm in character. Let me right. <laughs> I'm a char- I am a character in character, not, and I have to play the role. I'm not an outlaw um, piece of shit right now. <laughs> right. And so, you know... Pike Bishop says, you know, offers him his arm and says, let me help you across the street, ma'am. And they do. And they're all, it's all very nice. And it's all very Boy Scouty. And then we cut to the top of a roof across the street. Yeah. It's a whole damn posse up there on the roof. Uh, Someone's looking down. Holy shit. Uh, and and the, the most important of them uh, is a character named Deke Thornton, uh, who's basically the saddest man in the West. Uh <laughs> The, he's like, know, the, looking he's like the first emo of the West. <laughs> yep. And, he, I mean, he has a good reason to be the way he yeah. is. We have his character's backstory. Uh, he has a pretty good mustache, as as do most of the other people up here. Uh, but most of these are obviously just scum. Uh, yeah. By, by the way they're dressed, they're carrying rifles. One of the posse and, members I recognize, by the way, is our legendary mustachioed actor, Struther Martin, who plays uh, yes. Coffer. He plays Coffer. He <laughs> what is an so awful. freaking wonderful like this guy and he's and his his buddy uh who plays tc is mustachioso lq jones we honored him in a past mm-hmm. episode and they might actually i'm not sure but they have one of the best like bromances that i've seen like in one of the oldest movies i've ever seen like they have a solid bromance where it's like you can fight but they're like yeah bro i still love you though you know <laughs> It's very interesting to see these two guys interact. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Get his boots off! No, it's it's a it, it, they are a kind of comic relief. They a little movie. bit, but so um, dark and serious too. Yep. Like like, and you have you have they have to be seen to be believed. Apparently, Peckinpah told his his costuming supervisor that for Coffer he wanted someone who would be the nineteen thirteen equivalent of a biker. Oh, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> so he costumed him in this bizarre thing, and he he wears this huge cross on his chest that has like instead of like a instead of just being a cross or perhaps being a crucifix, it has like a a rifle cartridge wired to it. It's. <laughs> He's like he one of really, those true bounty hunters. Like the one of the first times we see Strother Martin is he's kissing the barrel of his gun. Like he yes. cannot wait, cannot wait to fucking kill somebody. <laughs> it's amazing. But Deke Thornton is played by Robert Ryan, uh, who'd had a long career. You know, he he's an interesting fellow because he had a long career playing absolutely 
nasty, brutal, tough guys for most of it. Uh, like in his first major role, Crossfire, he plays a character who beats a Jewish man to death um, out of anti- just pure anti-Semitic nastiness. Right. And uh, yeah. you know, he goes on like that. In real life, Robert Ryan was, was, a, was very different. He was a pacifist and a civil rights activist. Uh, and you know, apparently a very kind of a very sweet person. Uh, here he's playing, I guess, a little closer to his natural self because he's he's weary. Yeah, he's got like he a wants to get Lincoln esque vibe to him or something. He wants <laughs> he wants to get this job over with. He doesn't want to do it uh, as we'll and we'll learn for you know why he's doing it and why he doesn't want to do it later on. Here he peers out and he makes. Uh, he, he leaves already makes Pike Bishop. He says, there he is. There he is with his gang. Um, now, they all go into the offices, the administrative offices of, of the railroad. Yeah. Uh, the the Pecos, out, uh, and South, Pecos and South Texas Railroad. We find uh, out they're not, um, uh, definitely not officers because they right away just hold the bitch up. There's a guy having a, there's one of the, the clerks. He's having a phone call and. He's talking. He's tell, he's telling them like he's not happy with them, and right away these guys pick him up, throw him across the room, yep. and they say, "Fill these fucking sacks with some silver. Let's go." They're basically robbing a payroll at the administrative oh, office. Yeah. I, I remember Pike Bishop's order: if they move, kill them. And then right but there we get the freeze frame directed by Sam Pickenball. <laughs> Yes. That's <laughs> so cool. That, that's the title, actually, of, I think, one of the biggest biographies of Sam Peckinpah is If They Move, Kill Him. So dope. Now, things are going to get a little bit complicated here because the if you remember the uh, you remember the temperance meeting that's taking place down the street? Uh, well, they have gotten done with their meeting, and now they're going to have a parade. Yeah. Yep. All right, so they're parading down the street. Talk about the most, this, ugh, a sober parade. Who needs that? They're already boring. Well, so, they're already boring drunk. They're 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 parading down the street with their band as the uh, as the robbery is going in progress at the other end of the street with Pike Bishop and his gang, you know, taking what they think is silver uh, from this railroad office. Uh, on top of the roof, and they're they're singing a hymn too. It's like it's a very ironic situation because they're singing the, the old. There's an old hymn called "Shall Shall We Gather at the River," which is used in a lot of westerns. Uh, it's often used seriously here. It's dark irony because it's all about, you know, we'll beat each other in heaven after we die. <laughs> and so, some of them are going to get there in a couple seconds. Oh, yeah. Let me t- trust me on this. Again, they're pretty quick. Uh, meanwhile, someone in Pike's gang spites, spots the bounty hunters who are on top of the roof because they have very poor discipline. Uh, like they're always like popping up above the parapet, essentially to take a look at what's going down. They, their rifle barrels are protruding. So it's obvious they're there. Pike takes a bunch of hostages inside the uh, inside the, the, the railroad office. Uh, he orders one of the dimmer members of the gang, uh, a character named Crazy Lee, to hold them at gunpoint <laughs> yeah. while they burst out. And they said, you know, as the parade is coming down, and initially they think it's kind of a joke, right? It's like, they've got a parade going, well, we'll just join them and go out yeah, of town. Yeah, like as a diversion or something. But now it's gotten a lot more serious because they realize that there are guns being drawn on them. Yeah. So... Pike's way of dealing with this situation is to take the oldest clerk, throw him out the front door to create a distraction, and then come 
bursting out, guns blazing away at these bounty hunters who are up on top of the roof. Uh, under the command, by the way, uh, of a character called Harrigan, who is an utterly slimy, amoral railroad executive who's apparently been chasing Bishop for some time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he has put together this posse to try to finally put an end to him. So they come out guns blazing just as the parade is passing by, and it's utter chaos. Uh, basically, the two the posse is shooting at the gang. The gang is shooting back at the posse. Civilians are falling down dead in the middle of the street because they're being hit in the crossfire. Uh, <coughs> and there is a lot of like um, focus by Peckinpah on the children and the children reacting to the violence. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of... I notice he really focuses on that. So I think try to show that... There is real carnage that goes on here. There's real damage to not only to the the people, the community, the villages, but to the children that have to see this kind of violence. And he, I think he really tries to capture that. But at the same time, I remember reading something that he was like, I was hoping to make this like this this very distinct significant impact on people about the violence of what goes on but it turns out people just really like a lot about guns and blowing up shit and <laughs> people dying yeah he was like well damn like who would have thought that but yep. he really was trying to show just how mm. dark and gritty it can be in, in in this kind of scenario where you're dealing with outlaws and shit oh it's very bad a number of the bounty hunters are killed a number of members of pike's gang Peripheral characters we won't know a whole lot about anyway are also killed. Yeah, they're killed. Uh, a woman is trampled in the street. Yeah. Uh, uh, the woman who plays the character trampled, the stunt woman who plays that woman, that character, I'll have more to say about later because she shows up again in the movie in <coughs> in different <She> roles. <coughs> That's hilarious. Oh, it's it's a great story. Um, and basically, you know, you know, Thornton gets a, actually gets a chance to shoot pike bishop with his rifle he's like a dead it's a very short shot he could have killed pike bishop but he hesitates and then when he does fire a tuba player from the the temperance band has wandered into the line of fire and gets cut down instead leave it to a tuba player to get the hell in the way and take (laughs) take the shot damn tuba players they never know what the hell they're doing but yes he he takes the hit um he should have played a better instrument you know maybe he would have been been stuck in the middle of the freaking gunfire but yeah the crossfire that goes on here the amount of people that die is absolutely ridiculous i was at first i was like what the hell like they cannot be if they couldn't have been hired by somebody that is from this town and they in fact they are which is i was just that i wouldn't have thought that harrigan was actually a part of the town but he is i'm not i'm not sure he is he works for the railroad right so he's like a so he's, railroad detective or something uh, I think he, I mean, he sometimes called that, I think it's more likely, given the amount of money that he's throwing around, that he's more like some kind of executive. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, he also, he obviously has a great deal of political pull, because as we will learn later, he managed to get um, Deke Thornton out of prison uh, to run this posse for him. Yeah. Uh, And and so, obviously, he seems to be a fairly powerful man, and he can just tell people to fuck off, which he will be doing in a a short time, because the gang manages part of it to ride out of town. Um, And, yeah, the ones who survive, one of them has been shot in the face and has been blinded. Yeah, he's pretty messed up. Uh, Um, Deke tells his guys to head out. 
We get yep. we get back to the kids and they're putting grass on top of the little scorpion pit that they've built, right. and they're all giggling while they're doing this. So I guess this is a <laughs> show that you know. And also, like, there's also a scene later on where you see the kids kind of like bang, 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 boom, 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 bang, bang. So it's like, yeah, well, these. What we have whew. is in the in the chaos and the aftermath. Basically, you know, you've got townspeople who are yelling, who are screaming at Harrigan. Uh, the three hostages who get taken, uh, you know, try to escape after they're basically harassed in various ways by Crazy Lee. Um, there's a bit of enforced method acting apparently in this scene because Bo Hopkins was told by. The, the woman, the, the there's like one of the hostages is a middle aged woman, and Peckinpah wanted to evoke a sense of real disgust out of her, but she wasn't doing it. So he told Bo Hopkins, who plays Crazy Lee, to stick his tongue in her ear. Oh, that's uh, why he does and that. And then, then he got a genuine reaction of disgust. The hostages attempt to escape. And they are gunned down, although I think down. probably off cam- camera by uh, Crazy Lee. Then, you know, he turned, Deke yeah, well, and, they come in because they hear the gunfire because pretty much everything's stopped at this point. And, yep. And uh, Deke and his guys are looting all the because they're a bunch of bandits, like they're a bunch of fucking outlaws. So they're right. just getting boots and belts and whatever the hell they can there's get. A, that's worth there's anything. a scene, there's a scene with, with Crazy Lee, or sorry, with um, basically Coffer and TC, uh, our odd couple, yeah, you know. St- <laughs> Yeah, but who shot this guy? Who shot yeah. that guy? Help me get this guy's boots off because I want to steal them. Yeah. Uh, Deke Thornton is wandering around the scene looking very disconsolate. I mean, you know, he's obviously wants no part of this and it's a disaster. Uh, whereas the uh, railroad executive, Harrigan, is just, you know, yelling back at the townspeople. It's like, I don't care what you think. I represent the law here. Um you know, we were shooting down a bunch of outlaws. It's not my problem if, you know, you got in the way. Yeah, uh, and when they hear so, Crazy Lee shoot those hostages, they come in. Crazy Lee has his freaking rival out or whatever. And so a couple of townsfolk that I think are officers shoot him. And he mm-hmm. says something like, um, Why don't you kiss my sister's black, black cat's, cat's ass? ass. <laughs> Uh, before Harrigan shoots him a couple more times. Yeah, Harrigan, like, yeah, this guy was not dying. I was like, what is he, on PCP? Like, this guy cannot go down. He's on, like, bath yep. salts or some shit. And, uh, but he yeah. was a pawn. He was sacrificed, essentially, or as I interpret it, uh, so that the rest of the gang could get out of town. The guy, the, the point being that he's so dim that when Pike tells him to hold them hostages, he just says, okay, I'll hold them here till hell freeze over if you need me to. And that's what happens, essentially. Yeah. So we have that. We now have Crazy Lee dead. It's a terrible situation in the town. The gang rides out. As they're getting out of town, uh, one of the, the guy who's been shot in the face, whose name just escaped me, he's saying, I can't, I can't see, but I can ride. And then he falls off his horse. Uh, he says, no, I can't ride either. Just end it. And we see Pike pull out, pull out a forty-five caliber automatic, uh, presumably something he stole from the army, Shoots this guy dead. Right in the freaking face. And you'd say, boy, you know, at this point, nobody, nobody's hooting and hollering at this point. No. We realize this is a deadly serious business. Uh, and there's like a back and forth where you you want to leave him or do you want to give him a decent burial? Yeah. Um, Dutch does a good job of making himself present here. Because he, yep. he does talk a little bit about, yeah, why don't we give him a proper burial? We'll sing some hymns. We'll bring in a choir. We'll waste all our damn time. we got to get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? Like, yep. this is, you know, just like the guys that died back in town, this is something we need to do. We need to move on. So yep. uh, we get back to Harrigan, who's yelling at the bounty hunters because they let some of the most valuable bounties get away. 
Um, yep. You know, the ones they really wanted again. So Harrigan doesn't really want Deke to lead them because he used to be that outlaw in the gang with Pike. And that's when we find out that he actually was part of uh, Pike's gang at one point. Right. And uh, but, we do get a little but bit he of was captured. Yeah. He was captured. He was sent to prison. We see him being, like, flogged or something in prison. It's obvious he was very poorly treated yeah. there. Uh, and he can't stand to go back. So he's chosen to be part of uh, a bunch of bounty hunters who will try to bring down... Harrigan gives him 30 Pike, days Pike to Bader. get Pike or 30 days back to Yuma, bitch. Yep. <laughs> I might want to note that, that uh, at this point that uh, Harrigan is played by a, a crazy person, right? <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah, kind of. Eccentric. By a character named Albert Decker, uh, who was kind of a crazy person. Apparently he showed up in on set in Mexico, where they were, or you know, uh, on location in Mexico, where they were shooting, he had like a he had a thirteen year old girl in tow, uh, who he lived with during the shooting, and who he introduced to at least Al Q. Jones as his wife. That's so um, gross. Uh, note: she was not his wife. Um, after he after the shooting was done, he went to he went back to Los Angeles, where he died in an apparent autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, and so, if you want to really hate this character, you can feel free. It's, yeah, uh, uh, it's a it's real free shot here. Little mystery uh, behind that death because I just don't know how you can be tied up at the in the intricate way. Because I looked a little bit into it, and I was like, I was kind of wondering. I mean, it could be the most fan. I think the only thing that makes it seem like he did it all himself is the fact that because he was in his bathroom, tied to his his um, you know, he he was tied up to the 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 freaking curtain rod. And tied with his wrist to his back and everything and a ball gang in his mouth. But the chain on the door was also closed. But a couple of things were also taken from the house. Some money, some cameras, some equipment. So I don't know. It's all very suspicious to me how the fuck this all occurred. But either way, the guy's dead. The guy died shortly after. But obviously wasn't a very great person. So someone that's into some dark, weird shit. Uh, not that... Yep bondage or asphyxiation if that's your thing hey i ain't here to kick shame but obviously was into some worse shit uh bringing a 13 year old girl to set like what the fuck is wrong with you bro uh and they said he was difficult to work with too yeah i'm sure yeah of course but um yeah and he but the character well, the, the character is in his own way memorable so he does play kind of a piece of shit very well i'll give him that yeah. so he calls deke his judas goat <laughs> you're my judas goat mr thornton what the fuck? Um, and so, yeah, basically, he's sort of what I guess you could say blackmailing Harry. Like he's basically saying, you either do the job for me, or you go the fuck back to prison. You get your ass whooped every single day. What do you want? Um, then when the outlaws get to the river, and the Mexican dude uh, Angel uh, really enjoys the view, while everyone says like, "Nah, it just looks like Texas." <laughs> Who gives a shit? Mexico lindo. This is and it's, well, I don't see what's so lindo about it. Uh, <laughs> Here, here. This is interesting because this is actually one of the few mistakes in the movie mm-hmm. uh, that I could that could be spotted. If you look at the way the river is flowing, uh, it's going the wrong direction. Oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if you're like standing on the U.S. bank of the Rio Grande, uh, the river should be flowing from right to left, right? Yeah. If you're looking into Mexico, so. But you know what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. I, well, I think it was another river standing in for the Rio Grande anyway. So yeah, uh, I think the Rio Grande yeah. is a little. I don't know, but it was a very it was a pretty deep ass river. I was looking at the horses, and they did lose some horses in the filming of this movie. I think four, 
And mm. I can honestly see why they put the horses through all kinds of scenarios in this movie. Um, so I'm sure some may have gotten injured and things like that. But um, And it was 1969, so not as much Overwatch and that kind of stuff. But that is probably one of the more unfortunate things about the movie. But they do have a lot of horse action throughout this. Um, I don't mean horse action as like you see horses boning. But, you know, it's like horses... <laughs> Horses moving around and falling around and shit like that. So, yeah, so they get to this Mexican, small Mexican village, and there's this uh, burly, bearded, bearded drunk guy uh, who we we find out is Freddie Sykes. <laughs> what do you know about yeah, this guy? Well, <laughs> Freddie Sykes is played by an actor named Edmund O'Brien. He's so good in this one. <laughs> yes, he is. He's, um, what does he do? He's in this tough old guy. The, Edmund O'Brien was apparently actually from Brooklyn. Wow. Uh, and he was, his parents were Irish immigrants. He, there's a story to the effect that he was coached to doing magic when he was a boy by Harry Houdini, who lived in the neighborhood at the time. Oh, shit. And he's a, he's a remarkably prolific character actor. Uh, he got a, a Best Supporting nomination for the Barefoot Contessa in 1954. Uh, and he was the lead actor in a very famous uh, film noir called D.O.A., uh, one of the very first film noir and one preserved as a significant movie. And he did a lot of, he did a lot of other things. He's just very versatile. And here he's, he's, he is another kind of slightly comic actor, uh, yeah. in this, in this appalling universe. But he's looking after, he's, because he's the old guy. I mean, he's, in the movie, he looks like he's probably about 70. Yeah. Uh, in character, the character looks like he's about 70. He looks old enough to have, you know, been a veteran of the Battle of Gettysburg, basically. Uh, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> and he's, at this point, he's looking after horses at this, like, you know, it's like a, a ranch or something like, or the ruins of one somewhere in northern Mexico. And here we have one of the great intra gang confrontations. Because it's time to divide up the loot. Oh yeah! But but not before an argument starts with uh, Tector and uh, Lyle. Lyle. They say, "Well, we think the equal shares aren't fair. Uh, it's not fair. We decided so." And uh, <laughs> you know, because they thought they did more work than other people. Uh, it's a scene where we basically see uh, Pike Bishop assert his successfully assert his authority. He says, "Equal shares is how we do it." And if you don't like it, you know... You can fight for it if you, you want, know. but you might fucking yeah. die. Yeah, especially with Angel, because they, um, you know, he sort of taunts them a little bit. In some ways, Angel actually does play a kind of Mexican caricature in this scene, but he's doing it He's doing it on purpose. He's taunting Lyle and Tector. Yeah, he, and he shows, he shows that he is actually a quicker draw than either of them. Yeah, and when Lyle chickens out, when, when Pike confronts him... Uh, Angel does this little bit of Tommy Wiseau, like, cheep, 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 cheep. <laughs> yep. But he's got to do, like, the chicken sound uh, just to fuck with them, you know, because, mm -hmm. I mean, he ain't bitching about his shares. You know, it's Lyle and his brother, so he's, like, he's in good terms with Pike, and so he ain't going to fuck with him. But I do like this whole interaction, um, and damn, they got done dirty because it turns out they knew they might be coming to this to get this payroll they unfortunately only got a bunch of cheap ass just metal washers which don't have any right. and i like it i think i think it's tector that's like oh silver circles or something like that and he's like that's like silver so that's freaking washers bro this silver rings yeah, silver. oh shit this is like sonic the hedgehog but silver it's like no dude 
these are worth crap. Like this is worth a dollar. So yeah, they all get super pissed off that they were screwed over. And Sykes has one of his most kind of prolific scenes here where he goes on a full rant and does like a weird limerick kind of like, hey! yeah. <laughs> he kind of sounds like a, uh, 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 what do you call it? Like a prospector. <laughs> yeah. They're golden them hill. And he gets super pissed off. And Pike mentions that um, the bounty hun- one of the bounty hunters is they're led by Deke Thornton, and they, they're part of this whole setup. That that sobers him up real oh, quick. Oh yeah, it's like oh, Deke shit. Thornton. Oh, <laughs> apparently Deke Thornton's very good at his job, so they are kind of in trouble. Yeah, because it seems oh. like Deke Thornton and and Pike definitely were at a level of kind of close to each other. They were kind of shoulder to shoulder in terms of their skills. Um, they all have a history with each other, him and the other old guns, like like uh, Sykes. Mm-hmm. So they, they, you realize right away, oh, these guys all know each other, and we're going to learn a little bit yeah. more. And the guys get pretty pissed off about the whole thing. They start talking about their next move. Pike mentions that they need to start thinking beyond their guns because those days are closing yep. fast. Because yep. uh, this is a lot about basically the end of the outlaw world they, when you really couldn't get away with this as easy as you used to back in the day it was getting a little more difficult there was much more than just guns at play um whenever uh whenever it came to making easy money and lyle brings up how him and his bro uh tector were just having it with some hondo whores <laughs> well uh which isn't very far from san antonio yeah i used to actually work in hondo for about a year oh, really? yeah and uh, while Pike was out stealing army horses to prepare for the job, they they all start actually laughing and having a really good time about this whole scenario. I'm like these guys are definitely just a bunch of gangsters, really. It's <laughs> just crazy ass freaking outlaws, man. I love their like joking style. It's just giving each other shit mostly, <laughs> which kind of reminds me of my friends here with the uh, with the podcastio. So not much of a difference. Except that we don't rob things, typically. Oh, yeah, no, no. Me, rob things? No. So then we <laughs> we catch up with the we catch up with the bounty hunters and coffer-ass uh, Thornton. There's a quick scene here where he asks Thornton about Pike. And he says, uh, is it is it true that, uh, this, tell me a little bit about this Pike guy. Like, what's, what, what is about him? And True you rode with Pike? Yeah. He's like, he's the best out there. He's never been caught. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> because unfortunately Thornton's working with a bunch of freaking crazy ass people that aren't very sharp so he doesn't have the best team and back in the village with Pike's boys they try to get some sleep and I actually really like this little scene this little kind of quieter scene where it's nighttime you rarely get to see a lot of these scenes it's usually just the the, the, the bandits or the outlaws doing crazy shit all the time but there's times where they got to rest eventually and they can have some meaningful conversation and Pike's talking to Dutch, and they're hanging out together and trying to get some sleep. And Pike mentions that he wanted this was supposed to be his last job, and he mentions that he uh, liked to make one good score and back off. Yeah, how many times have you heard that in movies, Faustus? <laughs> yes. But of course, of course, um, we have you know Dutch's reply is back off to what. <laughs> Like, where are you gonna? Like, what are you gonna do after that, dude? It kind of, kind of, kind of blew up the cliche right it there. Um. <laughs> I love that part, and uh, it looks like he wants to grab the payroll um, uh, from the troops along the border. And we get a flashback of Pike and Thornton. Uh, we finally get that his uh, the history, the background behind mm-hmm. this friendship. And yeah, Pike was just cocky as shit, kind of like the cocky fucks he's dealing with now. 
he was in that same point where he, they were making a ton of money and doing great. They're with a, a few ladies of the night having some fun after a, a good, probably a good robbery of some sort. And Pike is confident that he knows that they'll just be fine. But Thornton's really to go. He's like, dude, we need to get out of here, man. We can't just be sitting here still. They know that we might be, be you know, we might be here. They might come, you know, come over and try to get us. And Pike's like, don't worry. This is my job. I know that we're okay. One of the ladies of the night go opens the door, and unfortunately, not the case. It is some officers. They shoot Thornton in the damn shoulder, and Pike runs like he stole something from Kmart. This guy got no loyalty whatsoever. He was like, bye, and he just like took off. Uh, we learn that this haunts Pike. Um, this is something he is incredibly ashamed of, um, and we'll learn later on, you know, he definitely, it's something that stays with him. But yeah, this is when we get that. I guess it was, uh, they're now they're frenemies. You know, they're always going to be connected, but Thornton's never going to forgive him because he got caught and he got put into that prison and fucking tortured for who knows how long before Harrigan took him out. It's a, it's a really dope scene. And yep. uh, Pike mentions that he knows Harrigan is behind all this and. He knows that Harrigan also has some major beef with him as well. He mentions they have a history or something, but he's very vague about it. And uh, Dutch is reflecting on the day and hoping things look up real soon because, well, that was a fucking horrible day they just had. I mean, they lost like half their guys, if not more. Um, and then good old uh, Sykes uh, gives them some, serves them some coffee, but it's fucking hot as shit and it tastes like shit. <laughs> It's he really is, I guess, some of the comedic relief too, because like he's like, oh, it's hot now, and like he's barely even reacting to how hot it is, but he puts it in their hands, and they're like, holy shit, it's like boiling hot coffee. I yeah. didn't realize that back then, the whole fucking glass was like hot as that like tin cup or whatever the fuck they're drinking out of was like hot as shit. So yeah, yep. if you wanted coffee, you really fucking wanted coffee back then. By the way, they're drinking coffee just before they go to bed. Like, like I think my mom does that. I don't know. I haven't met other people that drink coffee before they go to bed, but I guess that might be a thing. I don't know. Um, tweet to the podcast, yo, if you happen to like to drink coffee before you go to bed. How about that? Uh, hashtag coffee before I sleep. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. So then the outlaws head down to this desert terrain, and this is one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Sykes. Who's a little older, like you said, Faustus, falls off his horse, which makes all the horses and their men fall off their horses. Uh, they're coming. Oh. They're, they're coming down like a, they're coming down like a sandy ridge, yeah. right? Uh, you know, part of maybe the you know Chihuahua Desert or some some such place. So it's easy to fall, yeah. uh, and it leads to a confrontation where I guess Lyle says, "I'm going to get rid of Sykes because." Yeah, he's like he's obviously causing a problem for us. He's too old to be running with us. Uh, it becomes another moment where, you know, Pike Bishop has to assert authority, and he says, you know, we all stay together because that's how you do it. Uh, and then he tries to get back on his horse, and he falls because the stirrup comes undone uh, on his horse. So he's laughed at. You know, the, it looks like there's a, it's a difficult moment between him. And the Gorch brothers, essentially. Yeah, they're a little bit younger. They got them by like 15, 20 years. And so they're like, oh, looks like uh, he might be ready to, you know, turn in his cards and head to another game. And they say something like that or turn in his, his, uh, his uh, fucking, what do you call him? I don't know. I don't gamble a lot. <laughs> his tokens. Or I don't know what the fuck. Um, and so, like, 
they're giving him a lot of shit. He he eventually gets on his horse and he gets on it without the stirrup. Um, you know, he he grabs onto the pommel, pulls himself up. He's acting like a man who's in pain. Yeah. Um, but he, maybe he really is in pain, having just done that he stunt. Is older. But, uh, I mean, he's just yeah. biting his bottom lip, basically. And, and then you can see him sort of riding off. You know, he hurts. He's an old guy. Things are not going well, but he's got some of his dignity intact. Um, so, have you ever ridden a horse, Faustus? I have never ridden a horse. I mean, it's actually I'm given. You have to be quite quite athletic to do it for any length of time. Uh, That's what I hear. I have never done it either. Yeah. Um, considering I'm from Texas, I am from the inner city. So, um, the the only horses I knew was the horsepower and a lowrider, baby. So I, I uh, but, but I do have family that do have ranches. So maybe it is in. I I should do it now before I get any fatter because I'm going to just feel bad if I'm sitting on a horse. Yeah. Um and uh <laughs> really making it work for it. So we'll we'll have to see. Oh hi. If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Podmoth Network. Hey Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone related topics. So what are bone related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage. What do you think about this little conversation that Sykes has with uh, <laughs> with Pike? God, talk about awkward, but basically, right? Basically, <laughs> it goes up and he, you know, he says he's a, he begins. Sykes begin. He canters up beside, uh, besides, yeah, you know, Pike, and he says, you know, that was a pretty good little talk he did about staying together back there. It's the way I see it. And yeah, Pike says, oh, okay, sure, great. <laughs> Say, uh, you know, how did things go back there with uh, Clarence Lee? So uh, you mean Crazy uh, Clarence? <laughs> <laughs> sure. He said, yeah, did he do okay? Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. You know, he was my grandson, after all. And you can sort of see Pike sinking a little bit internally because, you know, he basically, he left CQ back yeah. there. Uh, and he said, well, you know, he, he did fine. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, you know, it's just it's like says, I wouldn't want him to not pull his own weight, uh, and someone has to do that. Uh, and, you know, you see, obviously, Sykes is sort of pleased to hear that he, you know, he did what he was supposed to do, went out like a man. And I just, you know, but for it's hard, must be more psychic trauma for poor old uh, Pike Bishop because he knows that you know maybe he didn't have to die yeah. back there, and if he had known that he was his grandson of an old comrade, yeah, you know, maybe he wouldn't he would have made a different decision. Yeah. He would have tried to protect him a little bit, but let's face it, there's a reason this motherfucker was called Crazy Clarence. This little bitch, holy shit. This guy had, like, future serial killer vibes to him, so maybe uh, uh, Pike did us all a favor, or, or uh, fucking Harrigan did us all a favor by fucking finishing off this son of a bitch. But I, I would feel yeah. kind of bad finding later on, like, from Sykes, like, oh, bro, like, we go way back. I wish I hadn't killed your grandson. <laughs> My bad. Um... 
So then we get maybe one of my favorite shots in the movie. We get that slow-mo shot of the bounty hunters riding out. They're all, you know, side by side in their horses, um, akin to very, very many uh, good Western films, as I'm sure. Um, I think every Western film probably needs a kind of shot like this, and it is just magical. It looks so good in the, the Mexico setting. Loved it. Uh, so then the bounty hunters get to the river, and... Uh, that uh, I think uh, who is it? I think it's Coffer. It's like uh, that gets you to Mexico, and Thorne finds out that the nearest town is Agua Verde, and he asks Coffer, "What's in Agua Verde?" And he goes, "Well, uh, Mexicans." <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I like Coffer. Might be what it's like. Brother Martin. Thank the you, Mister Office. <laughs> such a piece of shit but then he's <laughs> actually the way the way he says it really is very what comedy time he looks at well, mexican yeah. <laughs> everyone just laughs like, at what, what a, like what a, what a stupid question <laughs> i like that everyone just is always fucking with thornton because because he has a very passive demeanor like he is tough when he wants to be but he has a much more calm demeanor as as opposed to pike who's a little he can turn on this like a really aggressive vibe to him kind of a very militant heavy-handed vibe and so everyone starts laughing they find out it's actually the headquarters um for for a bunch of people that are against uh pancho villa uh which right. includes the uh, mapache territory and angel brings his outlaw home eventually uh after this scene they head back or something like that i think um uh was it they, they basically they, they they figure that Pike is going to come back because he needs to do a he needs to put, get a score having been frustrated in this attempt. They're so they're, gonna, him out. they're not going to go they're not going to go into Mexico where they would be at a disadvantage. They're going to try to wait him out. So they head back. Meanwhile, the gang goes to uh, Angel's village, yep. uh, which looks pretty dire at first because they ride in. And there's like you know various stone ruins oh, and starving dog dogs and so like forth. Starving like his ribs. And uh, I'm like, yeah, oh there's God, like, very... like, did they just find that dog or what? Jesus. Yep. So, but then when they eventually get into the the village itself, it's located in a rather idyllic situation. It's sort of like a, it's by the shores of a river, uh, amidst trees. Uh, this is apparently just a site that uh, Peckinpah and his lo- his location people found. Wow. Uh, in Mexico, it's got a nice little pond. Uh, oh, it's really it's, it's like and there's these lovely trees <laughs> and it's all green. And for people who are allegedly being viciously oppressed by General Mapache, they actually don't seem to be doing that badly. I mean, they, you know, they, the gang gets there, everyone's hanging out. There's enough food. You've got like relatively well-fed looking children running around, going swimming. Uh, and Pike talks to the head of the village, who's a. Uh, this is the I guess our first. Aside from Angel, our first significant Mexican character, he's called Don Jose, I think, in the screenplay, and he's played by a Mexican director and actor named Chano Urieta, uh, who had directed dozens of movies in the golden age of Mexican cinema. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't even know his name was Don Don Jose. I I didn't even get him a name. I just called him Mexican Raiden. But yeah, Don (laughs) Don Jose, he's awesome in this movie. He's sort of of the head of the village. Uh, and it's for Angel, it's like really hard because apparently they've been raided. His father has been killed. Yeah, uh, and also like the, the woman that he admires and adored has disappeared. Uh, he assumes that this is because she's been abducted by Mapache. 
but it turns out that she actually went voluntarily with Mapache to become a, a soldadera, uh, you know, in a sort of group of, you know, others. A who are Yeah, she became of, a, yep. a groupie. Uh, and I like that uh, Don Jose says something. You might have this line better than me, but he says something about how, how angel dreams of love and Mapache just eats the mango. Just right. <laughs> She's a ripe she's right for she's picking. She's ripe for picking, and, and he, and he it, eats that yeah. mango, baby. So obviously, Angel's in a very bad state very at this emo. point. Like he wants, he wants, he wants revenge on Mapache for taking his woman and killing his father. Um, Don, or Don, Don Jose thinks this is a bad idea. Uh, as does uh, Pike, who basically tells him, "Look, uh, you can't be doing, you can't be dealing with this." He's more powerful than you. You either live, learn to live with it, or I leave you here. Uh, and so he straightens up and says, yeah, "I will follow you, Hefei." I do like the idea that. Uh, so this is during the pachanga because I like the idea that they, the you know, angels like, "God damn it, I'm gonna get that son of a bitch, Mapache!" And then like Donizé's like, "Let's have a party." <laughs> so, so the whole which they they do. have a whole blown they, like full blown fucking party. Because these gringos have come into town, and now it's like Angel's back. They don't know that Angel's a outlaw guy. Like he mentions yeah. that. I, actually, it's a really funny well, bit. Uh, Don, Don, Don Jose has figured yeah, it Don out. Yeah, Don Jose right? figures it out. And Pike's like, "Eh, you're no different than us. That's why you're able to recognize us. Like you, you definitely right. have been part of that that world too." And they laugh it off, and they have a good time. But actually, uh, that is one little bit when Angel's bringing them into his hometown, and he's like, "Hey, don't, don't." Be disrespectful to my village. I'll freaking kill you. And they're like, "Oh, do you have a sister?" And Angel's like, "Yes." And I'm like, "Well, I'd be a, I'd be nice to make her acquaintance." And then another guy says, "Well, I'd be nice to make your acquaintance of your mother." And then another guy's and your grandma. <laughs> they're like wanting to fucking bone it all, like everyone in his family. Right. I gotta admit, made me laugh. That's some like bullshit that we would have done back in the day. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's a good time. Uh, anyway. Uh, yep. but, uh, <laughs> and they seem to they seem to have a really good time. They do. Like, you know, dancing Sy- around. Sykes like goes in and dances. You know, he's going to steal that guy's woman and so forth. It's just. But the guys yeah, actually and, act it, like je- like this is the nicest the guys act throughout the whole movie. That's true. Like yeah. even the brothers, the Gorch brothers, don't act like assholes, and they're like the biggest assholes in the gang, and they're mm-hmm. like innocently getting to know the people and and having fun and stuff and so it's, it's a little interesting to see like they actually paid res- like they were respectful to angel's request and didn't do anything stupid while they were at the village i thought that was kind of a weird hey we're in a gang and we do have like a semi respect for each other so i thought that was kind of dope like I, I i that is something i very much took notice of because everywhere else uh lyle and tector complete garbage humans <laughs> so so this is the first time that they don't act like barbarians. Uh, and I think right. even Don Jose mentions it. He's like, sometimes these men that are full of anger and, and hatred, they just miss their childhood. They miss like that innocence. Right. Um, so there, there is a, they do take notice of it in the movie. Um, and what do you tell me? What do you think about this um, when they're heading out of the village and there's this really heartfelt goodbye as there's a sad song playing? They're they're marching out with their horses. Doesn't it feel like they're saying goodbye forever to them? Like it's sort of a weird. <laughs> I think they are. There are a number of internal reasons in the movies. For one, do you know the song? I, Las Colondrinas. I've heard it before. I'm just not familiar with the meaning of it. 
it's it's basically a, a story of exile and a swallow that can return home being mm. being observed by someone who who can't and so you know the the last line of the song is i will hear your song swallow and i will think of my homeland and cry but um it's also i'm told sometimes sometimes performed at funerals um because the swallow has a mythological significance uh it's used for it was used as a metaphor by catholic missionaries who were first um evangelizing to these largely indian populations in mexico that you know it was used as a metaphor for the soul returning to god yes so this is in fact a myth there's a deep mythic significance in the use of this song at this time, in what's really a very touching parting scene. I mean, these these young women come up to the village. I think one of them offers, like, Texer a flower or some such thing. Uh, Angel's mother embraces him as he's riding out. Sad. And then, then, you see him, then, they, then you see them ride out you know, from from behind, out, of, out from under the trees into the sunshine uh, as they are going to proceed to Agua Verde because they don't really know where else to go. Uh, and they're going to try to, I guess, you know, try to get, at least sell off uh, their excess horses that had been being kept for them by Sykes in the first part of the, mm-hmm. the the first part of the story. So you know they can make at least raise a little cash that way, and so they head out uh, and they go to Agua Verde, which is an odd place. It's kind of like a ruined hacienda or partly ruined hacienda. Yeah, it's definitely seen some uh, battles. It looks like it's seen some yep. explosions. Uh, we get the only tit in the movie, which is being suckled by a baby. So thanks, Pack and Paul, uh, for yeah. uh, being naturalistic that way. We appreciate you. It's not the only one. You forgot about the scene with Aurora later oh, yeah. on. We'll come to that. <laughs> yeah, forget about that. But it was the first one. It's the first titty we see. It's gonna keep keep happening. <laughs> you know, Tim would um, Tim would have also been able to tell me that I was wrong. So I appreciate y'all. Uh, yeah, this this place is definitely. Um, it kind of feels oppressed, but also doing okay, like lively. I guess there's like a good population here. This is much bigger. Like there's a lot. There's a lot of soldiers, and then a lot of other a lot of civilians who are, I guess, kind of in the status of camp followers. Um, and you know who are like you know the families of these soldiers or whatever they're all wandering around. They you know the the gang the the bunch wanders in there. You know it's kind of they're kind of fig- trying to figure out what to do. They don't see anyone like themselves. It's all Mexicans. Uh, and in drives Mapache, who has a motor car, yeah. uh, a huge one, um, all tricked out with like you know rifle. Um, rifle slings he looks like a boss in this fucking thing he does it's driven in uh by you know his his lieutenant uh who i guess is named what hernandez i have to look at my index of uh mexican army personnel uh so that i can tell you who these people are is it the one with the longer hair there's one the longer hair and then there's the uh lieutenant herrera and i can't remember what the other guy it's lieutenant there there's um yeah, Lieutenant Herrera, who's played by Alfonso Arau, yep. um, he's driving. He's the guy with the goggles, yep. obviously. He is longer hair in this movie. Yep. Yeah. but the guy, his boss, his senior, his senior commander is General Mapache, uh, a, a name which I guess means raccoon in in, in Spanish, <laughs> but which also, but which also can also in northern Mexico uh, means a thief. Um, 
So, you know, he's obviously not <laughs> meant to be a terribly good character. Mapache. Ma- yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> Mapache is played by another uh, Mexican film director, interestingly enough. Uh, his name is Emilio Fernandez, also known as El Indio, uh, because he was identified with he had a, an Indian mother and, uh, I guess, a Spanish father and identified more with his Indian heritage. He was a very great director. He, in the golden age of Mexican cinema, made two very famous movies, as, long, as well as like, like dozens or hundreds of others. But there was a 1943 movie called Badia Candelaria, which was the first Mexican movie exhibited at the Cannes Film Festival, wow. uh, when the Cannes Film Festival resumed after the Second World War in 1946, and it won the Golden Lion, oh. uh, the Grand Prix. He also directed a movie called La Perla, Sorry, the La Perla won the Golden Lion at Venice, and he ran the Grand Prix for Maria Candelaria in 1943 at Cannes. So he was a huge, hugely important and influential Mexican director. He wasn't directing so much at this time, but he was also a very prominent figure in cinema. Now, he had he had his downside. I mean, he basically traveled around with what is everyone simply referred to as his harem, um, he lived in like a huge fortress-like house in Mexico oh, City. Wow. I wonder if he uh, was into harem, anything else. <laughs> well, he was, I mean, he was basically, he was also apparently drunk about as much as he was aware. Uh, oh, but he, uh, he is apparently also the guy who suggested the ants and scorpions scene um, in the very uh. part of the, the very beginning of the movie. Uh, that part is not in the screenplay, at least in the version that I was able to get my hands on. Uh, it was something he just suggested in the ad. He said, oh, when we were kids, we used to do this. I mean, it does um, kind of remind me of the equivalent of when I was a kid and my friends would pour salt on snails or, like, burn ants with a magnifying glass. Like, it's a weird brutality that children do because they don't understand light. I remember, like, getting a bunch of light bugs and smearing them on my shirt and destroying them so I could write my name on it. So I, there is a weird thing as a child where you just don't feel – you don't understand the damage you're doing to animals because you're just like, oh, this is fun. But then you later on realize how fucking brutal it is. So that's kind of a great yeah. – I mean, not a great idea, but that's something that's very akin to childhood that he thought of. That's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, you had that contribution to the movie as well as his remarkable acting role. And – he comes in. He's got his basically his second his second and thirds in command. the The older, the more senior one is played is uh, Zamora. Um, he was a very prolific character actor. Uh, he has something like what 172 IMDb credits in both English and Spanish, and surprisingly well, well divided between the two. Uh, he actually has an, an entry in the 1989 James Bond movie *Licensed to Kill*, uh, although I can't remember what he what exactly he did at it. Uh, and then the guy who's like the uh, younger one, the one the lieutenant uh, with the uh, the goggles, is uh, played by Alfonso Arau. He's also a director uh, right, for a bit. Um, I don't know if he, he may have director credits. Yeah. I mean, I also know that he appeared in at least one German language movie. Uh, and he was trained in Mexico City under Seki Sano, who was a Japanese expatriate who lived in Mexico City, uh, who had the reputation of being one of the greatest acting teachers in the Americas at that time. And Sano trained under Konstantin Stanislavski. So there's a very, uh, a very important sort of actorly pedigree there for this particular, for this particular character actor. Um, and he's, you know, he's important in there. 
So those are the, those are the principal military guys. There are other ones that we'll get to shortly because after uh, you know, after sort of the general Mapache drives in, he goes to his favorite activity, which is be is drinking and fondling uh, the various soldaderas who are surrounding him. Oh yeah. So he goes up. He goes up with his fellow officers. He's sitting on this like kind of porch. Uh, that's part of the the ruined hacienda, uh, and he's up there with his fellow. He's up there with Herrera and Zamora uh, and a bunch of soldaderas and his two German military advisors. By the way, I will tell you, um, when they first came through, just to take a step, a second back, when they first came through with the vehicle, I kept wondering what the fuck are the guys tripping out on? They don't know who this guy is yet. As far as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. they don't know who this guy is yet. I didn't realize that it was because they had never seen a an automobile yet. I was like, oh, right. they're tripping out on the fact that they're looking at a moving automobile vehicle. These guys have been going by horse for years and years and years. And then I think Sykes says something like, well, hell, there's like, I heard there's one that's just like this, but it can fly and this and that. And they think he's full of shit because he's kind of crazy and he's old. But but Pike has seen it on yeah, Pike. Before. Yeah, Pike mentions it. Like he's like, "Oh no, this is a real thing. Like these exist, y'all." <laughs> but, uh, they got they got one that can fly yeah. too. Goes goes sixty miles in an yeah. hour. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of amazing. They, they, they and and the most ominous line. They say they're going to use them in the yeah, war. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's just a, a just a little bit of a a hint of this is just about the time where their time is fading. Like modernization yep. is coming for them and. It's getting there quick, but yeah. But it's also like one conflict inside another conflict inside a, a yeah. pending global a conflict, right? I mean, it's like it's Pike and his gang versus his wild bunch against a bunch of bounty hunters. It's like it's inside a war between Mapache and Pancho Villa, who is the principal antagonist to someone like Mapache, inside a larger thing called the Mexican Revolution, uh, which is Huerta versus a bunch of other forces, including. Via and uh, Emiliano Zapata, which is inside a world that's about to have a great global catastrophe. Uh, the general was in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. He's actually the antagonist in that movie. He plays the father. That's right. He, he, play, he plays like the, the yeah, crime the boss crime or whatever. Boss, who, which he does a great job, yep. by the way. Because <laughs> he just has a yeah. resting no. dick face. <laughs> he has a resting asshole face, and uh, it works very well for him. <laughs> yep. So yeah, so he's a, another uh, mustachioed all star, uh, and he is indeed mustachioed. So the guy, the bunch gets up. They they take a table near the porch. They get a bunch of beers, um, and who should wander into the scene? But Teresa. Teresa. She's pretty too. I got to say, I would have fallen over there as well. So I give you. I I, I get it, Angel. <laughs> And he doesn't take too well to seeing uh, the uh, Teresa flirting with the general. She's like, I think she she's bringing him yep. a kind of a little, presenting him some gifts and shit. She's like, hey, look what I did for you because uh, you're yep. handsome. There's, there's, there is Teresa's played by a, a woman named Sonia Amelio, uh, who's the love interest, and she has an interest, her own interesting query is that she was a child piano prodigy. What? Yep. Uh, she was a child piano prodigy. She played in major venues and on Mexican television beginning at the age of six. And she then went on to become a performer in dance uh, and became a well-known ballerina as well as a, as well as a pianist. 
uh, and she apparently got this part. I don't think she was primarily an actress, but Peckinpah went to El Indio's big fortress-like house in Mexico City and heard her play and just decided that she would be appropriate for the role. Wow. I mean, she is appropriate for the yep. role. She looked great. She looks very flirty. She's got a good smile. She also can kind of make that weird, snide, condescending face very well. Um, yeah. But there's, a, there's this confrontation between her and Angel oh, that takes yeah. place. It's all. It's an entirely like, yes, Spanish. Like, and also the movie doesn't with, with give no, you. With, yeah, the, you literally have to know at least a little bit of Spanish. Or yeah, like mm-hmm. what the fuck's up with that? So that was that the way in the theatrical cut, like where. I I I'm not sure. I, I imagine it probably was. My feeling about that scene is that even if you know no Spanish, you know what she's doing. It's kind of obvious what's going on, yeah. which is that she is essentially defying angels. Says you know, I, you know, you're. But Pinche Pueblo or whatever like that is you know, this, this awful place. I don't want to live there. I want to be here. Yeah. I'm happy. You know, I have the riches of, uh, but, uh, you know, of, of Papache, yeah, who obviously has access to a lot of money uh, and other things. Yeah, she's basically, uh, but it's she's interesting. basically a modern Instagram if, model, if you think about it, Faustus. But at the same time, the look on her face when Angel first turns away is an odd mix of I showed him and regret. Or so it played to me. A little bit. I can kind of see like, where you're coming from. I, I mean, because it is, I mean, I bet you there was a part of her that did love him at some point or had some sort of feelings for him. And also there is a part of you that feels a little bit garbagey about turning your back on your on your town, on your village. Um, but like I said, uh, she saw the easy money. She's pretty. She's probably one of the prettiest girls in the village. Why not make a little something better for yourself? So there is very something Instagram modely about this. It's like, hey, I can, I'm not anything against Instagram models, whatever. Like, hey, if I could get that easy money and I was as pretty as you were, I would do the same. And so she goes to Mapache where she could get some easier money because she's pretty and live a life that she could never have imagined because she was probably barefoot and then eventually picking either some kind of cotton or some kind of corn at some point, just like my mom did in a ranch and figuring out her way to live that way and then going from there. Or you can go with this rich fucker and you could live this like life of luxury and, and, and basically be around him and sit on his lap and lick his ear holes. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that is what she decides to do, and she- <laughs> well, she pro- she promptly does, uh, and of course this drives Angel over the edge, especially because he is taunted a little bit by the Gorches over the fact that his woman is. And like, I don't think you know, they knew Angel was gonna trip out this much. Like I think they were kind yep. of just egging, like kind of like sharp sticking him, you know, like elbowing him in the ribs a little. Like the kind of stuff that they to probably do to each time. other all the and time. And what is uh, Angel yell? He goes, Puta! <laughs> and then he fucking shoots her straight in the chest like a fucking he, crazy he, person. Like straight up in the chest, he, blows her away. She is dead on shot. Yeah. Like, boom. And everyone stands the fuck up and bitch, what the fuck were you doing? I would have assumed the same thing. I would have, if I was one of the one of the federales, I would have been thinking, oh, this dude's trying to kill my boss. So they all stand up, right. they point their guns, they grab the guns, they bring down the guys themselves. Pike's gang bring down Angel. The, bu- the bunch, the bunch just immediately, yeah, you know, they 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 have a sense this is not a place to be fighting. They surrender their weapons, uh, and then there's like a standoff where it's explained that. No, this guy wasn't trying to kill the the general. Uh, 
it's explained, I guess, you know, essentially that um, Dutchner is enough Spanish to basically point that era so novia, right? He was his, his fiance yeah. or his girlfriend or something like that, and he was driven crazy. And I guess the way that we could explain this scene is the um, the general is actually kind of like amused that you know he can take away the woman of someone who feels this strongly about her. Um, and when it's clear that he's not a threat, just sort of, you know, he gets his ass kicked, but the rest of the, the rest of the bunch are handed back their guns, uh, and invite, and at this point, the Ger- this guy has a German Commander, military, a pair of German military advisors, Commander, Commander Frederick Moore, uh, who, um, as is there basically these are, are this German is historically descent? accurate or something. Because no. <laughs> you do a German no. accent fairly well. I've heard you do it in several episodes of other shows. We we have a lot of German speakers oh, okay. in our family. Okay. So uh, you know, uh, but but no none of them are actually ethnically German. They just learn the language. Interesting. Uh so what happened is you know, he's made, this is also historically accurate though, because while the United States at this time had withdrawn diplomatic recognition from the the president from the General Huerta, uh, who is occasionally referred to in this uh, in this movie, the Germans continued to recognize his his regime, uh, and you know obviously there's this Wilhelmine tendency to try to make trouble in foreign policy, and these military advisors are part of, probably part of that. He looks at he says, he looks at um, essentially at Pike's weapon. He says, that's very interesting. Are you men associated with the American army? Uh, because what Pike is carrying, probably because he stole yeah. it as part of his costume yep. uh, to be a, a, a trooper before, is a, is a forty five caliber automatic pistol, uh, which, which did exist at that time, was carried by American officers and men. Uh, and he says, you cannot carry that as a civilian. It's not for sale. It's forbidden for anyone except members of the army. Uh, you know, what's your deal? And he says, well, we're just not associated with anyone. But obviously this interests more. And so the get, the bunch are actually brought inside to have a drink inside with the general. Uh, and at this point, Moore and Zamora, uh, pitch to the gang a new job. Which is to say, they happen to know through their intelligence that there is an American arms shipment being moved by rail someplace across South Texas, and they want those guns. Yep. And they want that ammunition because they are out of guns and ammunition. And Bachevia's doing and so a pretty good job of fucking them up. So. Yeah. Yep, they are they are losing the Pancho Villa, but they figure if they are better armed, they will stop losing. Uh, and so there's a discussion about what to do. Uh, I do like the idea Pike, of the fact that when they when when uh, Dutch asks, this is a little bit close to the border. Why why can't he just go? Why can't the general just go and take his own guys? He's got plenty of federales with them. Why can't he just go and hold up this rail this rail run on his own? And they're like, this is a PR thing, man. We the we's trying to get good. He's trying to get good uh, relations with America and the United States or whatever. He doesn't want to be interfering with this, and so it's actually kind of genius for them to be paying ten thousand dollars to a bunch of hoodlums, basically a bunch of fucking gangster bandit outlaws, and have them go do the dirty work. And he benefits from it without hurting his relations with the states. Pretty fucking genius idea. Yep. Right. Um, but of course, you know, the Germans benefit from it because it means that their preferred boy in Mexico can oh, advance. Yeah. Uh, so 
basically they they pitch the you know pikes decides that they'll take the job ten thousand dollars is a hell of a lot of money uh but of course he has a few terms first he wants them to let angel go um so you know although mapache is maybe isn't that fond of the idea you know he says okay you can have him you know because you know you we wanted to pick him and then um he says and now with your permission i'd like a bath and this, <laughs> it's pretty funny. In, in we one of my one of my favorite comic lines of the movie is that Moore's assistant, another German officer named Ernst, uh, says, "With my permission, you could all use a bath." And which to which uh, Lyle responds, "We don't need no bath." Uh, <laughs> he is a dirty son of a bitch. He, uh, and the- <laughs> he, pro- he probably needs a bath more than anyone has ever needed a bath at this point. But he says, "We want to. Ha- we want some of these women." So. Uh, another arrangement is made. Uh, we get kind of a um, guys having a bunch of fun. You know the the Gorch brothers. They get they get themselves some some whores and uh, have a hell of a time. They do a little. They shoot some barrels. Is that water that comes out of those barrels? That's wine. They're they're just drowning wine in wine. Barrels. Oh my god, that is some dope ass lifestyle right there. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty 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 decadent <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> some baller. Apparently. Shit. apparently uh, <laughs> Apparently, this region of Mexico, though, actually did produce wine at one time. It was a major wine-producing region up until 1916, uh, when there was an earthquake that shifted the water table and ruined the terroir. Oh, wow. But but the casks were apparently found on site, again, by the location people making the Wild Bunch, uh, because it had been formerly a a wine-making region. So they just filled them up. They shoot these barrels out, they shower in wine, then they get these... Uh, you know, these camp followers in, and they play around in a b- huge barrel of wine. It's like the size, bigger it's than a, you know, a hot giant. tub would have yeah, been, right? Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. Yep. Um, they're just having a damn good time. And uh, we get into yep. what what is this, like a makeshift sort of steam room, bathroom kind of um, situation? It's, uh, I guess, you know, the idea is that they are steaming themselves. I don't know if it has a specific name, although this is... This is a famous way of getting clean is to like, you know, sweat out all the dirt and so forth and then scrape it off. Um, and so basically Pike and Sykes and Dutch and Angel are all in this room. And like there are these old ladies who bring in these incredibly hot rocks <laughs> crazy, uh, bro. that they would, then, that they would then steam. You know, it's like, it's like a finished sauna, right? That's it's something it's similar in construction. I had never associated one with Mexico before, but you, know, you learn yeah, something every day. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I think that you know, basically Pike says, I'm going to build me one of these and live. I know. I mean, because he's like getting really close to the, the the nucleus of where all the heat's coming from, from that area. And yep. even Dutch notices, and Dutch notices this very heavy, deep scar in his thigh. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first time we see that, and the fact that he's trying to warm up his muscles and his bones because Pike is getting older, and um, so it's for multiple reasons. And then we find out that Angel is being the most difficult son of a bitch, but for a good reason. He doesn't want to help well, with the job. He's like, "Fuck this general dude! Like this guy's been hurting my village for fucking years." There, there is no way that I am going to go rob. You know, guns to provide to yeah. this guy, and although the other members of the the bunch try to persuade him that 
hey man, you know, you get a lot of money out of this, $2,000 if we divide it equally. You could you could take your people, you could move them to a ranch 100 miles away. Uh, you wouldn't have to worry about it. He, he insists their land is their land, uh, and I'm not going to be part of having them pushed off of it or oppressed upon it. Uh, so it's a getting to be a kind of a tense situation. I guess that it's, is it Dutch who comes up with the proposal? We'll give you a case of rifles and a case of ammunition that you can give to your people so they can fight back. But you give up your share. Uh, and Angel agrees to this immediately. Like without hesitance. Like that's how little that means to him. It, It means more for him to protect his people, for them to be armed than for him to prosper. Uh, which is honestly not what you would expect them to do for a person of color in this kind of movie in 1969. So I was like, so he, but he but he kind of is he is kind of the moral he center. He's you know, he's he has the more one, heart he, than any the of one the other kind of guys that are just fucking killing for money. The the one kind of heroic character yeah. here. Um, so we get that, and as soon as this is agreed to, Lyle and Tector with their uh, ladies stagger in. Uh, and Lyle says, I want you to meet my fiance. I'm going to marry her. <laughs> he is dr- <laughs> By the way, I can't tell, and I'm telling you, Faustus, I, and I've been around a lot of drunk people, like, I cannot tell if Warren Oates is drunk in these scenes or is pretending to be drunk, because he acts drunk better than any actor I've ever seen in my life. It's perfect. It's like, holy shit. This guy is so good at it. I'm my new fiance. It's like, holy shit. This guy's so good. And they all just get a big crack out of it. He's like, why are you laughing? <laughs> Basically. Because <laughs> to him, he's met the love of his life. Oh, my yeah. God. So good. Or for at least the next it's... several hours. And <laughs> so. And we're back with freaking so... Harrigan again. God damn it. That just ruins everything. Oh yes. Yeah. So, so now they're basically they're to go. They're trying to figure out what to do back in San Rafael, uh, and Harrigan apparently knows about this arms shipment as well, uh, and has figured out that most likely Pike and his Pike and his gang are going to be coming back and trying to trying to hit the train. So they're figuring out what to do. He's going to put uh, Deke Thornton and his crew of scum and gutter trash or whatever he calls, <laughs> he calls them, them uh on on the yep on the path of of these people you know and he, he says you know the, the if pike tries to hit that train he's not going to succeed they've got troops with them deke points out that the troops in this case are going to be green barely raw recruits uh which they are yeah, as we'll like find out uh and, he, and Harrigan just says, well, you're just going to have to make do with what you've got. You're down to 24 days, all right? You'd better figure it out. Um, so he tries to figure it out. Yeah. And now... He's stuck between a rock and a Now we cut place. to the... It's, it's, you can see... Yeah, and and I will say, Thornton um, does a great job of, of, of... He has that face of, like, well, I don't, I don't know what else I can do. I'm just going to do the best I can. Um, and then, yeah, then from from there, we this is when we get to Pike's background about how we got that damn scar in his fucking leg, which is rough. Yep. As they're they're riding up, they're riding back north. Uh, the bunch is, and we get a flashback scene. Uh, Pike has fallen in love. He's obviously a younger man. Uh, I think he has no yeah, mustache. They, I think they must have shot these before or after. I guess. Yeah. 
Yep. Uh, and he has fallen in love with a woman named Aurora, uh, whose husband has allegedly departed. Uh, and unfortunately, this turns out not to be true because what happens is he's, there's about to be a, a love scene between him and Aurora. Take note, Yobo. Uh, and then, um, what happens is his husband comes back, he shoots, he shoots Aurora dead and then shoots Pike in the leg before Pike can really respond. And then he runs yeah, away. Never able to get um, him. And Pike mentions, he thinks about finding that son of a bitch and killing him on a daily basis. So this was a real mm -hmm. love of his life. Uh, Pike likes the spicy and uh, I don't blame him. Uh, so, <laughs> so he, he feels that burn um, every single day. And, and, and so we, we see a little bit of why he is as dark and damaged as he is. It's pretty tough. Once you lose the love of your life, we're like, well, what the fuck's the point? Let's just might as well just be a fucking mm -hmm. bandit and do what I want to do. Um, then we get one of my favorite scenes, which is the entire train scene. I like the, ent I love like heisty shit. Like, <laughs> this is a great, great yes, caper scene. It's so good. It's so intricately done. And you can follow it because I've seen um, caper scenes where you're like, wait, what happened or what the fuck? And they do a really good job of mapping out the train. I'm not that familiar with trains, obviously. Like, who the fuck is at this point? Um, and so being able to kind of get a good surrounding of what's going on really helps. But I love this scene, dude. Let, let me try to put the the consist yeah. together at least a little bit um you're basically traveling down uh a spur line of some kind you have at the front of the train you have a single flat car being pushed by its locomotive there are two uh you know there are two soldiers sitting on the front flat car with rifles these are u.s soldiers because they guard they're guarding the weapons shipment Immediately behind the flat car, you have a small locomotive, a, a Mogul 260 locomotive. Uh, you know, I think it burns, it probably burns uh, oil or coal. Uh, this is a real locomotive that apparently was sitting around in the shops of Nacional de México in 1969. Uh, and I guess the production company paid the mechanics there to put it back together, weld it up, and make it run. <laughs> uh, so, And it runs oh, yeah. pretty well. Uh, it pushes, pushing the flat car behind this, there's like a tank car. Uh, I'm not sure what it's full of. It might be water, although the, the engine is shown watering, so maybe not. Behind that, or behind the, behind that, you have a, uh, another flat car with the actual shipment on it. Uh, stacks of cases of rifles and ammunition and other supplies that are, you know, underneath a tarpaulin. Two soldiers guarding that. Then there's an old, like, passenger car behind it. Inside the passenger car is the rest of this military unit, uh, a bunch of very young-looking soldiers plus a sergeant uh, who are sitting in basically asleep on what must be a probably a really hot, monotonous day. And there's also uh, Deke Thornton and his crew of bounty hunters who are here described as railroad detectives. Uh, behind that, you have a single freight car and then like a stock car at the back of the train that contains the horses, both of Thornton and his group and the troops. Wow. Okay. So a yeah, short train. Pretty short. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know, it, it, it makes for a fairly complicated scene to shoot. Uh, and do we want to try to get into it or do we want to pick up the next time? Because we're at one forty. No, let's get into this train scene. How I, uh, yeah, I say we, we dig into this train scene and we see what's going on. Okay. Because they're, what they're about to the train? refuel, right? Is that what that big old... Because uh, it's like steam or something. It's like That's, steam powered. They're, they're yeah. watering. 
uh, they're watering. So basically, you know, the, tr- the, the engine needs water in order to, to function. So this, what they're pulling up, to, you can see these still in some parts of the country. There's a water tower. Uh, the train pulls up, comes to a stop so that its tender is immediately below the chute for the water tower. All right. So they get the train pulls up. It stops. The locomotive fireman gets out. He goes up and he pulls down the chute to put water into the tender. And who's hiding in the chute but Angel? All right. <laughs> Angel has it's a shotgun. Awesome. He points it at the fire. He points it at the fire. It comes out of nowhere. Really I was like, well holy done. shit. What the fuck? Uh, he drops down. He has a shotgun. He points it at the fireman. Uh, he says, you know, just keep doing your job. Meanwhile, the two soldiers in the front flat car, they've gotten off. They've looked around. They don't see anything. So they figure, okay, everything, you know, everything's safe for this watering stop. Then the rest of the bunch gets out. The train has stopped over a small viaduct and hiding inside the viaduct under the tracks between the viaduct support beams and the track are the crew are the bunch. They drop down real silent. It's commando like Uh, they get out. They walk around. One of them, I believe, Tector climbs up in the front of the locomotive. Um, The two troops on the front flat car are facing away from him. So he just taps uh, the locomotive with the barrel of his shotgun. The troops turn around. They see that they, they've gotten, been gotten the drop on. They put their rifles down. They surrender. Uh, then what happens next is uh, someone, I think, climb, managed to climb Borgnine. Um, Dutch. Yeah. Dutch manages to climb on, onto the flat car uh, where the other two troops guarding the munitions are having a smoke. He gets the drop on them. He they makes that surrender. little smirk, too. He's like, gotcha, bitches. Yep. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> and then Pike Pike gets the so, conductor, right? I think Pike goes up to the conductor. Pike 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 gets in the locomotive cab and and points a gun at the at the engineer. engineer. Yeah. Um, I, what, what do I say, conductor? So fuck? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know trains, Faustus. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> he's got the engineer at gun. He's got the drop of the engineer. Angel goes up, reaches in between the flat the the, the rear flat car. Arguably. And the he has the hardest cart. job. He's got to disconnect the cart. It's a tricky. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty tricky. He has to pull a pin uh, out using a lever to basically disconnect. I and mean, first, he disconnects the air brake. That's pretty simple. Um, but when he tries to pull the pin out, the conduct- that holds the couplers in place, holding the second flat car to the passenger car, it's jammed up. It's too close. So he actually makes a signal that, for some reason, um, Pike understands. Since these are too close. Pike essentially manages to communicate to the engineer, you need to back up just a few inches. Um, so he, the engine does, he pulls the reverse gear and then opens the throttle just a little bit. The thing pulls back and the engine could pull the pin out and separate the cars. Now, meanwhile, nobody in the passenger car really yeah. suspects anything. Um, they, basically, the army is completely <laughs> asleep. Uh, and... You know, the other, the other bounty hunters don't suspect anything, but at this point, Thornton is starting to get a little suspicious. Like, this water stop is taking too long. The train is moving in an odd way. Uh, what are they going to do? But it doesn't help. Uh, at this point, you know, I guess I'm trying to remember. The, the next part of the sequence is Pike orders the engineer to open. You know, they finish their watering. Pike orders the engineer to open throttle. And the train, the front part of the train, with four soldiers of the missions, takes off and starts heading off. Deke Thornton realizes that this has happened, you know, probably about 10 seconds <laughs> on. Uh, and he gets up, 
He looks around the passenger car. I like that car. part, by the way. He looks. I like that. <laughs> he looks. He looks at the army guys. One of them, you know, the like, main, he's just a the kid. main guy is asleep. Looks up and, like the main guy that's in charge, their commander yeah. or the, superior. The, the, the yeah. sergeant in charge of this unit is, is actually also asleep. <laughs> uh, so he just looks around. He, he thinks this is no good. They're so useless. He, say, he, call, he looks at all. Looks at his buddies. And says, yeah, he looks at go. his fucking dirty so the, buddies, like these fucking dirty bandits. He's like, ah, fuck it, let's go, guys. Even though y'all suck, y'all are better than this. <laughs> yep. So. What happens then is the train is pulling away. They run back to the stock car, lower the ramps, get their horses, and start to chase after uh, the train, the rapidly departing arms shipment. Um, they cannot, however, actually catch up with them. Uh, there are, is a moment where basically the soldiers on the front and back of the train try to react, uh, but the gang is faster. They're all shot. At some point, the crew of the train disappears, although I don't see them being thrown off. Uh, that maybe over have been overlooked in editing. Yeah. Train pulls away. There's nothing uh, basically going on at this point that the, the bounty hunters can do because the train is faster. Um, but at this point, the army wakes up, uh, <laughs> realizes <Holy> realizes <laughs> that that you know they that they've lost their arm shipment. They've also lost their railroad detectives. Uh, so they immediately start trying to unload their horses from the stock car. Which they can't do mess. very well because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, even even the sergeant in, in charge doesn't really know what, how to make anything happen. He's just yelling. Um, <laughs> so the truth, yeah, he's just yelling at people randomly. Uh, and so, at way, meanwhile, way down the spur, what happens is uh, they, they they pull the engine, the locomotive to a stop uh, where the, where Sykes and I guess. I guess yeah, Hector, I think, I think are waiting for the waiting for them with a wagon. They unload the the boxes of rifle, the cases, the wooden cases of rifles and ammunition, uh, and you know load them onto the wagon. At some point, while they're doing this, they realize that one of the boxes is actually a machine gun, um, which is a very exotic item in yeah, 1913. Uh, so exotic that this particular model, this is the, one of the other mistakes, this particular model machine gun ha- wasn't actually in production in at this time. It was a few years later. But, Close enough. you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yep, they load the thing. They load these things all onto the wagon, uh, and then they take off uh, with their wagon and horses towards the Mexican border. Now, meanwhile, before, he do- before they do this, however, uh, Pike gets into the locomotive cab, engages the reverse gear, opens the throttle, and jumps out. This means that the train backwards. is now running yeah. in reverse, back down, back down. Pretty genius, by the way, because it basically <laughs> yeah. key, it's basically just going to create more chaos for for everyone else in the area. Yep. And it's it's amazing. About, it's a really good setup. The, the the bounty hunters are coming down the track on their horses. They manage to like get off the track before they get run over. Although there is like a brief moment where you get body language from Robert Ryan. Uh, on his horse, watching the train going backwards, yeah. and yeah, it just sort of he, there's something about the way he sits on his horse that says, "I don't fucking yeah. believe this." Um, and but anyway, the train is coming back down the track, uh, and it's going, and eventually it's about to collide with the remaining cars that are stuck. And there. they haven't gotten all the horses out of the car. Uh, <laughs> they haven't got all the horses out of the cars. The sergeant says, "Oh, yeah, it's like collision where the horses falls down. It's a real mess." So the sergeant says to one of the yeah, one of the corporals, says, "I want you to ride back down the line, go to the, such and such a town, San Antonio. Where's the telegraph." He tells, I think he tells him to go to San yeah. Antonio. 
Well, I, think, I don't think it could be San oh, Antonio because no San Antonio is not close enough to where this could yeah, be. Yeah, where was it? At some but point he, they mentioned he, San Antonio, but I can't remember which part. But yeah, he does tell him to send a telegraph to the, tell him what just happened. Yeah. Yeah. He basically says, tell them that the railroad detectives uh, hijacked the arms shipment. So he's basically now chasing after the wrong bunch of people, but... Yeah, which yeah, he doesn't know. From his perspective, all he saw is the, the these guys riding away and the arms shipment disappearing with them. He was asleep for the rest of the operation. <laughs> uh, so there's going to be some very awkward questions being asked later on, no doubt. Um, and so eventually, these these cavalry troopers mount up, and now they're running down the down the line. Um, and uh, <laughs> that is the point where you know we are getting to one of the most dramatic scenes in the whole movie uh as they cross into mexico uh, basically they start yeah. lining up we find out they have this bridge border bridge that goes to mexico lined up with explosives yep. ready to fucking go but obviously with explosives it's all about timing it's all about preparation so they need to light those bitches as soon as the uh cart with all the ammo is heading across the bridge pike and dutch try to ward off thornton and his men as the wagon of ammo breaks through one of the planks like about in the middle of the bridge mm-hmm. and it's stuck so now freaking lyle is trying to push it through i think maybe his brother someone's behind and they're just trying to get that damn cart over that hole you really do feel the pressure because they're right there they're shooting at him you have the military guys coming through yep the military the, the cavalry is lining up on a hill uh, behind the, this whole thing, uh, and there's a shootout going on between uh, the bounty hunters and the bunch. They manage to get the wagon yeah. across. So now, now the bounty they ride off into Mexico. The bunch uh, are the bounty hunters are about to ro- follow them, but not before they get into a shootout with the army uh, because of poor discipline on the part of Coffer. He shoots one of these troopers. And you even got like a brief scene of this, like this young cavalry trooper being shot Rough. through yeah. two squibs, one in the front and back. Um, and, you know, Thornton is just losing his shit. Don't shoot at the army, you morons. Good advice. <laughs> um, because these guys may not be very good, but now a lot of people are going to be looking for you. Um, they ride out onto the bridge. They line up and they're about to face off when the dynamite goes off and they all, the whole posse is just dumped horses and all right into the fast flowing river below them. It is one epic. I'm so curious. I wonder if there's a behind this. You said, is there a documentary on this movie? There are documentaries on this. Uh, I know a little bit about, this is the very last thing that they oh, filmed. Oh, wow. Uh, because they had, a, they had like one take uh, or close to the very last thing that they filmed. They had like one take to get it right in. Uh, and they had built a purpose-built bridge out of balsa wood uh, so they could blow it up with like a minimum amount of force. Uh, they had to dam the river because normally the river was like a very slow-flowing you know, little stream, uh, and to get the effect they wanted, they dammed the river upstream for a couple weeks before and then let the flow come down uh, to get what they wanted, and apparently they managed to pull the whole thing off. Uh, they did not have any stuntman injuries. They didn't lose any horses. Wow. Uh it's but my epic. God, what a damn! Do I love practical effects? It's absolutely but, epic. You see all of them in the middle of the bridge. The freaking bridge just breaks down below them. All the pieces of wood and everything just falls down on them in the dynamite. It is just amazing, and honestly, so epic that I figured they were all dead. Movie over. <laughs> but um, and and you know, it is a moment for. 
for our bad guys, <laughs> which is kind of the weird thing about the Wild Bunch. We're following the bad guys. <laughs> so you kind of find yourself rooting or, for them you know, a little bit. It, Nobody's this good. This movie's idea of moral <laughs> conflict is it's kind of it's kind of evil versus yeah, other kinds yeah. of evil. There's really no but, <laughs> to be honest but it is an amazing scene absolutely loved it um and from there yeah it just it's just i i seriously believe like holy shit these guys are done for but you know what man this was amazing (laughs) i just love this scene so much so there we are and now what the situation is is pike and his gang are riding off into Mexico with a large quantity of stolen U.S. Army munitions. Um, And eventually, you know, the bounty hunters, I think some of them get lost. Uh, You know, no actors were lost, but certain characters were, are sitting, you know, melancholy, having lost much of their ammunition, much of their supplies, coffers, boots, uh, and other things. They're drying out on the Mexican side of the river. They can't go back to the United States now because they are in real trouble, uh, you know, because people think they stole the arms and shot soldiers. Um, and so they have no choice now except to pursue and hope for the best. Uh, and that is about halfway through the movie. All right. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the wild bunch. One hell of a ride. Um, Faustus is really just, you know, taking the reins and which makes my job easier. Um, just wait until the next one. I'm going to be even more drunk, and, and it's going to be fun and all, you know? So, see you all next time for part two. <laughs>